We have back on my good friend, former client, former Super Bowl champ, former national champ in college, Justin Tradow, and we're just going over his his current lifting routine. Justin shredded down from 260 all the way down to 215, and now he's back up to like 225 again. He's about to tell us what he's been doing. All right, go on. Yeah. No, so basically, pretty much a lot of the same stuff I did with you, Mike, just even higher, higher volume. So if, I, if I'm, if I'm going to be doing an, like a chest day or an upper body day, I'll do probably like four to 500 reps of that body part. And I never, I never do anything heavy. So if I'm about to fail, I'm not going to get hurt. I could keep trying. And if I don't get it, I could drop it. Whereas if you're, if you're taking something trying to get five reps, four reps, three reps, you're, you're, you're just, you, you're asking for danger. So I look at it as everything's cumulative. If I can not get hurt and work out for two years in a row, at a very high volume, lighter weight, you know, tempo, shorter rest, then I'm going to be much better off than if I get hurt every four or five months, like going really, really hard. And I've been doing that for like over a year now, and I'm in way better shape than I ever was. You know, it's funny, Justin. I remember when you used to do a lot of those uh, push-ups and inverted body weight row combos, those 40-20s. You didn't seem to like a lot of volume then. Huh? <laughs> you know what? It was... It was, it was, it was yeah. <laughs> It, it, it was different when I weighed 260. <laughs> I just wanted to put something on the bar and move it five times and leave. <laughs> and you're, you're doing sprint work too, right? Yeah. I don't lift much legs because um, when I squat or deadlift, it hurts. But I'll do, I'll do, I'll do sprints. I'll do sprints. Sprints and a lot of jumps. Tell, tell, Brooker, tell, tell Brooker what you did today for your sprint work and where. So... The, the, the closest gym to my house is a, is a classic LA fitness and they have, they have a 15 yard turf area. So I still do my sprints. So I'll do push up starts and I have like a five foot hall, like a hall area to like decelerate, but it's great because you're working on deceleration too. The only, the only problem is when the, the random patron gets in the way and I almost have a lawsuit on my hands. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Oh, man. I, I had some guy, some guy today. I think he was like one of the trainers. He comes up to me. He's like, yeah, I see you're doing a lot of plyometric work. He's like, you know, you should maybe, when you're coming out, try to, you know, stay a little bit lower. I'm like, buddy, I, I already fought the war. I'm just I'm just here to, like, try to run and stay in shape. But, th but th thanks for the tips. I'm sure you could teach me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, you must have trimmed down on what you're eating, right? I mean, that's... Yeah, I don't, I don't eat nearly as much. as the dur right. During the day... I, I practically never eat breakfast and then I have like a good sized lunch and then a protein shake in the afternoon and then I feast at dinner time and that's it. And what are you, what are you eating? I've been eating um, a lot of chicken, steak, fish, brown rice, and then in the evenings, whatever, whatever my wife cooks. Chicken. Chicken's a nervous bird, Justin. It is, but <laughs> it's, it's readily available. I'm not, I'm I can't not trying to believe how good you look, though, man. Oh, you look bro. like a different person, man. You're like yeah. trim, looking younger, look way healthier. Yeah, we had the um, the 10 year Super Bowl reunion, and I I was I was walking right by guys that I played with, and they knew they know exactly who I am, and they just kept on walking. And they turned around, they were like, "Oh, they, nobody, no one can even recognize me anymore." It's pretty, it's pretty funny. But it's good because the old me was not, it was a little bit scary. So now, now it's a little bit better. 
Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm sure you're pretty scary when you're still doing your 15 <laughs> yard fucking push up sprints. <laughs> Uh, this uh, the the old Justin would get kicked out of LA Fitness, not the new Justin, not the new Justin. <laughs> do, do you want do you yeah, want to tell right. do you want to tell that story? Nah, that's not a good one. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime the cops are called, is never a good story to tell. <laughs> All right, so. When you first came on the podcast, you were just getting into real estate. You were just doing some stuff and things were starting to go your way. Now it is next level. What are you doing? Yeah, so I think um, I think the best way to get into it is to start all the way from the beginning. So when I when I was first playing in the NFL, I was, you know, I was an undrafted player. My signing bonus for the Giants was like a couple of thousand dollars, like three or four thousand bucks. You know, I was fortunate enough to make the practice squad, make the roster, make a little bit of money. So I, I looked at money a little bit different than most of the guys that I was playing with. So I, you know, my my very basic 22-year-old mind told me, you know, go buy real estate. Most most rich people I know, they own real estate. Pretty, pretty simple logic. So I was always paranoid about getting cut or traded or having a very high income and then going to a very low income. So I I found a mentor of mine that went to my high school, actually. He was an old, older gentleman. He was in his you know, mid-50s, very experienced guy. And he, and he talked me into buying a three-family property, um, which is the house that I actually still live in today. So the theory behind it was, if I get cut, if I don't make any more money, my tenants upstairs will still pay all my rent, and I'm living for free in a pretty nice neighborhood. So that was my first like dealing and thinking into real estate. And as I played... I bought a, you know, another couple of properties and I invested with that same mentor of mine who was doing similar stuff that I'm doing now. He was doing, you know, 10 years ago, uh, where I, you know, I'd give him, you know, write him a check as a, as a limited partner. And I had no active involvement in the deals, but I was getting exposed to watching, you know, his business plan, how he handled the contractors, how he handled the sales and so on and so forth. So fast forward to the end of my playing career. I get done, I'm looking at different careers. You know, do I want to stay in sports? Do I want to, you know, work with Mike? Do I want to be a coach? Do I want to be an agent? Whatever it is. And at, at the end of the day, I just felt like it was, uh, you know, time to try something different um, as opposed to just staying in, you know, sports my entire life. And who knows, maybe down the line, I'll get back into it. I don't know. But I ended up just doing the most basic thing. I get my real estate license. So buying houses, renting, you know, renting condos, very, very simple transactions. And I hang my license with my old mentor with the intention that we were going to build some sort of investment business. And it wasn't just going to be your classic, you know, realtor, you know, listing, you know, listing your house. So right as I'm getting started, you know, unfortunately, uh, my mentor got, got sick and unfortunately had passed away. So I was kind of just stuck and trying to figure out what to do. So I, you know, just kept on renting apartments and trying to, trying to get my first listing in a house. I remember the first like three months I did real estate, I made like 800 bucks. Like I, I rented one one bedroom apartment. And I remember leaving that, that, you know, I'll call it a sale. I remember walking out of that place and saying, well, you know what? You know, you, you have to start somewhere. I made a commission. I made $800. I made money doing something besides football. You know, it's a start. So fast forward a year, I ended up being a pretty productive broker. And, um, you know, I, I, pr I pretty much led my small brokerage in terms of sales and numbers. And in that process, I met my current partner uh, who was doing a project on my street 
literally right next door. So I walked in there. I, I saw they were renovating. I, I saw what he bought the building for. I was trying to figure out how he was going to make money. And long story short, I talked my way into getting the listing. His business plan was very strong. And, you know, I sold it well for him. He made a lot of money and everyone was happy. So that was the closest I got to the process of doing some sort of small development. And that spurred me to buy my own property and basically try to mimic what everyone was doing. And in the course of that, the guy that I sold the property for is now my current partner. We decided instead of trying to compete with each other, we're just going to team up. And, you know, that, that, was, that was the beginning of the business we now have. And we've turned that into flipping one house to now we're doing eight properties. So, you know, saleable properties worth, you know, 10 to $15 million. Um, we'll do a couple million dollars in construction. Um, just an overall operation for flipping condos, houses, et cetera. You know, with the goal to graduate out of this and do bigger, larger deals. And, you know, that's, that's what's going to come down the pipeline, I assume. All right. So... You break down the deals into, into investor and then essentially sweat equity, but you also put money into your own deals. Now, if someone doesn't put money into their own deals, how do they make money on the deal? How do they, how do they divvy everything up? Well, whenever, whenever you have what we'll call it the GP or general partner, whenever the general partner sources a deal and puts a deal together, that takes a lot of time, effort, and knowledge, right? It, it might take, you know, two or three months of work and three or four deals that don't go through to finally land the one that does. So now let's say, you know, you, you're in the position where you have that deal. It's, for, for fun, we'll call it a flip. All right, I bought the house for, you know, $2. If I put 50 cents into it, I could sell it for $3, right? Something, that, that's the logic. So you bring that deal to the table, and there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a million ways to build the capital structure behind it. But a very simple way that most, most people that raise money for these type of deals do is they'll put a small amount of money into the deal, say 10% of the equity, and then the limited partner will say put 90% of the equity. So he's, in my opinion, the GP should always be putting a little bit of money in just because that's, you know, it does, it does go the other way. But I, I, I usually see it more of like a 90-10. And... At that point, it's a, a waterfall structure, you'll call it. So let's say you have 90% of the equity to the LP, 10% of the equity to the GP. And now we're, now we're, we're going into the capital event where we're selling, we're making our profits. So the first money that comes out of the deal will pay back everyone their money at a pro rata share. So dollar for dollar, the 10%, the 90%, everyone's getting their money back. That's the first tier. Of the, of the investment structure. So if there's enough profit for everyone to get made whole, everyone gets back their original investment, right? Now, the next step can either be a straight split or there could be another waterfall tier, which would be a, we'll call it a preferred return or a pre preferred uh, like interest, right? So let's say the logic behind that is if Mike's gonna invest with Justin and he can get six to 7% on average with his money in the market, if he's parking his money with me and I'm not giving any distributions during the process, that money should be accruing the equivalent of what he would be getting if he had it left in the market. So that's the preferred return. So let's say for, for, this, for this conversation, it's a 7% preferred return. 
So the first thing, everyone gets their money back. The next level of profits out pays the investor and the, and the general partner, whatever money they invested, the 7% to that point in the year. So it's all time weighted. So for simplicity, say it went to one year. So it's a one year simple interest. You invested a million dollars. The next 70 grand out goes to the LP for paying their preferred interest. Then after that point, there's going to be some sort of profit share. And it can be 50-50, 70-30. It could be tiered. It could be 70-30, 70 to the LP, 30 to the GP, until you reach, say, a 15% return. And then it could waterfall again to where the GP, the GP gets paid more money, the higher split. And the whole point of these capital structures is to incentivize the general partner to do a good deal, right? That's the way we look at it is we take very minimal fees because I don't want to get paid to do deals. I want to get paid a lot to do good deals. And the way you do that is you keep the alignment of interest between the investor and the operator very clear by minim minimizing fees and, you know, tiering the back end to make the general partner make money. Because if the Let's put it this way. The way we structured one of our last deals was if I make the, the, the limited partner 20%, everything after that, I get 75%. So now I've never met an LP that's not going to be happy to get 20%. They, they're going to root for me to hit that hurdle. So that means they're making 20%. And I'm saying, well, I better find a, a very damn good deal so that I can hit that barometer and then have a huge back end where I'm eating 75%. And now everyone's happy. Everyone's making money. And everyone's interests are aligned, right? You want the, the biggest thing, like, because I used to always look at it. All right, I was a football guy. I got asked to invest by a million people. And the first thing I would look at was, you know, what is the fee structure? Like, is this guy trying to do well so that we all make money? Or is he just trying to do the deal or get my money to make money without really having to perform? So the way I look at it is, if you perform as an operator, you deserve to get paid a lot. And if you're just going to try to get paid to do a deal, then that's, you know, this, that's not my cup of tea. Mm -hmm. So how do you, now, you and I did a deal together. We did the uh, uh, Dodd Street, right? That was the name of it. How was that deal structured? That was a very, very simple deal. It was a 7% preferred return with a 50-50 split on the back end. So... Everybody, and I, I believe we might have had in there, if it went to 20% plus, it was 75, 25. So again, essentially you get your money back, you make your 7%, and then whatever is divvied up goes 50, 50. And there's very, very minimal fees there. There's, there's not really like acquisition fee, this fee, that fee. If you look at some of the bigger deals, like, and that's also different when you're dealing with bigger companies because they need bigger fees to pay larger overhead, right? I have very few employees. I have a small rent for an office. You know, we're, we're not at the stage where taking large fees is, and I don't know if I ever want to be in that position. I don't, I, I foresee our, our business being a few deals a year that are really good deals versus big volume, big fee-based business. And, there, and there's, there's multiple ways to do it. Um, but that's, you know, that's, that's currently how we're doing it. Where do you find deals? And then where do where are like the good deals found? Like what's yeah, the That's a good question. Like it's a good question. So, you know, the deal that Mike's talking about in specific, I mean, I, I live in the neighborhood where we found the deal and I talk to everybody, right? So that this was an off-market deal. I had spoken to the seller. 
months and months before we actually landed the deal. And it's about access, right? I know the numbers inside and out. It's going to take me a matter of five minutes to figure out whether the deal is good or not. It's a matter of sourcing it. And people are always like, oh, you have to find it off market. It's, that's not true. A lot, I would say of the last, say, 10 things we bought, half of them were on the market, right? They sit for a while. You know, the seller gets frustrated. I come in and I give very good terms. I give no contingencies at all. The only thing that I do is an environmental because those can be like catastrophic if they go wrong. But besides that, I'll take the building if it's about to fall over. I don't care if there's any sort of, you know, CO issues or, you know, there's, there's nothing that's going to stop me from closing. So a seller that is maybe a little stressed and doesn't need to count their last penny would prefer to deal with an investor like myself. And you also build a reputation, right? I, I've bought enough houses, you know, in, in Hudson County to where when I walk in, you know, I have people calling me, asking me, hey, do you want to buy this? And eight out of 10 times, it doesn't work because I look at it, I assess it. I know what margin where I need to be and I offer. And if they don't like it, then that's pretty much it, right? And, you know, I'm not the type of guy that, you know, some people like to do business differently. Some people will say, yeah, I'll give you a million dollars for the property and I'm going to keep my inspections. And I, you know, I just want to make sure everything's okay. And then once they get them under contract, they'll start chipping away. They'll say, oh, the roof's broke. That's 40 grand. Um, you have a structural problem in the basement. That's 30 grand. And they'll, and they'll, they'll pull it down a different way. Right. I think that's a, that's a way, if you want to do one or two deals somewhere, that's how you can do business. I believe in being fair and honest. And if, the, if it works and everyone's on the same table, uh, or if the deal's on the table and everyone's on the same page, then, then that's great. I think that the more direct you are, the stronger you'll build your own reputation. And then people are going to be more apt to do business with you. And I'm sure it's the same in any business. Oh, I think so. I mean, when you get offered, say you get offered a deal, you like the looks of it, are you putting up your own money for skin in the game or are you actually looking at credit or some other way to sort so of protect your own done, funds? So the capital structures, you can literally, there's an infinite number of combinations of how to, how to structure the deals. Um, typically, the way the deal starts is I tie it up with a deposit with my own money. That's, 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 that's step one. And then I figure out the capital structure from there. When it, in, real estate, in real estate, until you have a contract, you're, you, the property is not yours. Once I have a contract on it and I give a deposit, now it's, it's effectively off the market and I can plan, right? So a mixture of debt and equity is usually the, the optimal way to do it. We've done them all cash, right? Where if it's a, maybe it's a little risky, maybe it's a riskier deal, maybe that, you know, if we were to leverage it, the, the payments would be a little bit aggressive. And yeah, the, the juice on the back end would, would show a higher return on the model on the computer, but you have to take into real life, you know, carrying and cash flow. So usually a combination of debt and equity is the way to do it. So we'll have some of the general partner equity, a portion of limited partner equity, and then we have local financing that will usually fund, say, 70, 80% of the acquisition. And then we'll take 100% of, of the construction, which will be on a draw basis. So we'll do all the roughing, plumbing, electrical, HVAC, framing, et cetera. And then we'll get a draw from the bank. And you only, you know, you pay on the interest as you draw. So it's a, it's a, it's a, fine, it's a fine line of 
you know, stretching yourself thin on cash flow versus bringing the money in because you know the the interest will add up if you're if you're if you're sloppy with with you know how you structure the construction months. So the only thing you take a loan on is the construction then. Depending on no no so the, the example I just gave was uh, the first thing was say seventy percent of acquisition. So okay, okay. you need th th say thirty percent you know in, in layman's terms thirty percent down on the mm -hmm. on the property. And then the construction will be 100%. That's, that's typically how gotcha. the banks work. Um, but again, that's for like a vanilla deal where it's comfortable. Um, if we want to do something risky and maybe try something a little bit different that could have some more reward on the end, um, we, may, we may raise the whole thing in cash, right? Mm -hmm. And then when we get to a point where we feel comfortable, we'll, we'll then put debt on the property. So le leverage is a phenomenal tool, right? It makes your returns go like this, but it also makes your losses go like that. So you have to always use and leverage in real estate is what makes real estate so attractive because it's asset backed. So you can you can you can leverage these properties and these deals. Whereas in other businesses, it's it's not it's not the same. You don't have the collateral to back to get to use the leverage. So I I personally like when it comes to these vanilla flips, a little bit of debt and equity, and that's how you do it. Unless you're gonna go very risky, then just go all cash. So how do you guys get so many mortgages? The, the assets, so it, the banks look at it as an, as, a, as an underwriter, as if they're an investor. They look at the deal margins. They look at what did he buy for? And if you go look it up, it's going to be one of the cheapest buys that was ever bought in the neighborhood. Can these guys build is the second question. Well, here's a resume of, you know, seven figures worth of construction we completed in the last six months. And then what is the ARV, the after renovated value? What is, what is the thing where they're going to be worth on completion? And then they look at comps, say, okay, this one sold for that, that one sold for this. We'll, we'll give them, this is the, this is the, the after running value we'll give them. And then there's your margin. So if you have a 25, 30% margin, right, in the deal, and now the bank's only funding, say, 70% of that, 80% of that, in the bank's eyes, they're buying very well. They have a lot of room. If the market gets corrected by 20% or the operator doesn't finish, they can still get their money out. They're all about protecting their principal, right? So the way they look at it is, if the deal's good, we'll lend. If you bring the bank a bad deal, they're not going to give you the money. It's that simple. Regarding like the, the the margins that you'll make off of it, what what's a good amount? Like, are you turning away stuff if it's less than fifteen percent profit margin? Or yeah, so without getting into the particulars of the the percentage margins, because a lot of deals I see, um, a lot of people would do them because the deals make sense from a, from a margin person. Like, okay, I can make, say, 15, 20%. I'll, I'll take the deal. I look at it more like an absolute dollar amount. If I can make, say, 400 grand or 500, like, I, I look more at the, the, the total dollar amount more than just the percentage because it's my time, right? I can't or we can't physically handle, say, more than 10 houses a year, right? So if I'm going to do 10 houses, and the margin looks good, but I'm only going to make 100 grand on a house. You know, it, it may not be worth my time. I may be better off taking my time to a larger deal. And that's the conversation that we're already having internally where, you know, it's, a, it's an economies of scale thing. I want to order, say, three houses worth of windows. And I think I'm a big shot walking in there, placing an order for $50,000 of windows. Half of them don't show up on time. I'm treated like garbage because the guy over there building a 75-unit building or 150-unit building he just put an order in for, you know, 20 times what I'm doing. So they're getting more things on site. Everything is smoother the bigger you get, right? 
but you got to get there in steps. And I think you, I think you learn the fundamentals starting from the bottom. And I, I believe in, I'll call it paying your dues is no different in, no, no different than sports, right? You, you don't just walk into the NFL as, as somebody that's ready to, I know it all. It's I spent already 10 years learning something and I'm about to spend another, however long I got learning every single day. So in my, in my mind, I learned from the very beginning how to, how to rent an apartment. Okay, then how do I renovate a kitchen? Then, okay, how do, I, how do I do a full floor? How do I do two floor? How do I do three houses? How do I do 10 houses? And then it's, how do I build a 30-unit building? Then how do I build a 100-unit building? And I, and I believe that that process is, you know, can it be skipped? Can you jump into big things? The answer is yes. And I think that people do that, you know, developers do it all the time. And if you get lucky, you'll, you'll kill it and you'll make, you'll make a lot of money. But I think that the principles that you learn on the bottom are not different than what you're going to get to on the, on the larger things. I had lunch with a, a very, uh, very successful developer a few weeks ago. He just built the, the building he built in Manhattan. <clears throat> I think his pet house sold for like 35 or $40 million. And I sat down with him, just, just the pet house, right? And I sat down with him for three hours at lunch. I mean, he was an awesome guy, loved to teach. And a lot of the things that he was talking about at his level were almost identical down to the analogy of things that I deal with. There's just like another two zeros on the end of the, of the problem. Like an example I can give you is, he's telling me about how, you know, these architects when they're building, and the engineers when they're, when they're building these, these, uh, these plans, they're, from an, for an insurance purpose, they overbuild by say 20% or 30% because they don't want to get sued. And what does that mean? That you're going to overpay to build something that doesn't need to be there. So he gave the example of they specced a certain type of steel that he knew from all his prior construction was too much. And he figured that out and saved like $2 million, right? I had the exact same problem in one of the basements. We were replacing all the beams for the house. And the architect specced like massive steel beams that were heavy and expensive. It was like $12,000 in beams. And we sat back and we looked at it and, you know, we challenged him in a respectful dynamic, right? And we end up with wood beams that are a little bit wider, a little bit taller, and we could just, you know, cut the joists and stick them up there a little better. And maybe the ceiling drops by an inch and we bought all the beams for two grand, right? So we saved ourselves almost $10,000. So being in the details like that at a single family house, I think is gonna be useful when we're building a hundred units, right? And I think that that level of thinking will, will serve anyone getting into real estate. Real estate. Well, people always ask me, I want to do a flip. I want to do this. I want to do that. You know, why don't you start with, you know, buying, buying property, like buy a property, renovate a little bit, do floors, do paint, get tenants in there, learn, learn how to work with real estate. A lot of people think that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a sexy thing to like flip houses and do all that. And it is, it sure is fun to do. But it's also very easy to get smoked and lose money if you're if you're inexperienced, and that, and that and that happens to a lot of people. So one thing that I could always preach is starting from the bottom and putting in the work and, and surrounding yourself with the right people, because I wouldn't be anywhere you know close to where I am without the people that sit in the room with me. I surround myself with, with smart people, people that work hard, uh, people that are not scared to get their hands dirty, and I, I don't and I don't mean that like literally on, you know, lifting up, you know, beams in a house, but 
sitting in the office at eight, nine o'clock, driving to a window, a window supplier in a box truck at 630 at night on a Friday and, and doing these things, you know, long enough will, will lead to success. So will you go in on a project if it yields a big enough absolute number of profit, even if it's a low percentage? So that's, that's a good question. And I think it's relative, right? Like, let's say oh, you're going to do a, you're going to do some sort of a small condo deal and you want to take a million dollar deal, renovate it, get into it for one five and sell it out for 2 million try to make say 500 grand, right? Whatever the percentage is there, what is it? 20, whatever the percentage is, let's say you you're doing a $20 million deal and the deal level margin smaller. Maybe it's a 15% or 10% margin, but the profit could be 3 million, right? Then the answer is yes. Because it's, it, it's also all about your time. So the one thing that you can't, that, that I'm learning, the more I do this, you know, now I have two, I have two kids. It's the more I learn, the most limited resource that we all have, it's not money. It's not workers. It's not, you know, hiring. It's, it's, your, it's your physical time. So it's, yeah, the deals have to make sense to press enter. And when it comes to a certain margin, that's just risk tolerance, right? Like, you don't, you don't want to take a deal if the margin's real thin because if, if, if the things turn a little bit, you're, you're going to lose, right? But in terms of the absolute dollar amount versus margin, it comes also down to your personal time. Like, I feel like our company has the goal of making, say, millions of dollars, right? So if, if that deal is not going to help us achieve that goal and it's still a pretty good deal, then, I will, then I'll walk from it. And there'll be somebody who's just starting that'll be a good deal for them. And the deals that I get, sometimes guys bigger than me, turn those away, right? That, that's, that's, that's how the ladder of this game goes. So banks make money on loans because it's a 30-year mortgage or whatever it is, sometimes a 15-year mortgage. But you guys have no intentions of holding that mortgage for a long period of time. You guys... Depends, right? So let's say half the properties that we're building, right? We'll sell the, the other half will be refinanced and, and put a permanent loan up. Right. So if we're working with a local bank and we say, Hey, you know, we want 75% or 80% of the acquisition of the, of the building and hundred percent construction, and you're going to give me a low rate. It's going to be 5%. I'm not going to pay more than a, you know, a half a point or a point or whatever it is. And upon completion, we'll stabilize it. And you're going to give me a 30 year permanent loan. So some of the game with, with these banks is that, right? A lot of the, you know, at our level, because we, we have a, a decent track record, we can do, to your point, like those flips with, with, with banks that will give us, you know, good, good four or 5% loans, right? But the majority of those bankers are not going to be giving out loans to flip. You're going to be dealing with hard money at that point where the interest rates get much higher, the points get more aggressive. And that's, that's, a, that's a whole other business in itself. We actually have done some lending on our side. Um, we do hard money. Um, you know, we, we find you know, guys that are <clears throat> a little bit smaller than us, that are local, that we know are good builders. And you know, we, we'll, we'll raise debt for them. And we'll, we'll structure everything just the way you know, the, the 500 million or billion dollar hard money private guy does. We'll do the same thing just on a small level. And that, if you look at it from, from, the, from the builder's perspective, let's say you need on a $100,000 deal, if you're doing a hard money deal, 
say you need only you know ten or twenty thousand dollars to do the deal, right? Yes, I have to pay ten percent and two points on the deal, but in the grand scheme, if things go somewhat normal and you finish the project and you leave, your money cost is just another line item, right? So you have construction that costs you seventy grand, and your and your your money that costs you twenty thousand. And then you still have your profit of say 40, 50 grand. And I only invested $20,000, right? Where people get in trouble is they take really bad loans, like 12, 13, 14, 15% loans. They don't know what they're doing, right? They buy, they buy something where they maybe don't really know the after sale value very well, where they're not versed in construction and they get smoked by contractors. I, I personally think that the construction is the biggest variable when it comes to doing these type of projects because it's a whole another world and you're dealing with tough, you know, tough people that they know their business much better than you do. So unless you're experienced and know the numbers, it's it's very difficult to kind of rein everybody down to a point where you could you can get things done at a reasonable price. Um, and then you know the after renovated value, that's market driven. No one no one sitting here can tell you what what things are going to be worth in a year. So that's always going to be a risk factor. And that's why you need to have a certain cushion to withstand a downturn, right? And then the, the third thing is the actual saleability. Like, are you going to build something first that, that, that someone wants to build something that someone wants to buy, right? Are you going to go build, you know, a luxury, you know, 3,000 square foot, you know, condo in the middle of, you know, downtown Philly or, or sorry, in like, in like West Philly in a rough, probably not, right? You have to know who the buyer is before you build it. Like, who are you building for? And knowing that buyer intimately will, will really help you on finish selection, layouts. Is a family going to buy this? Am I, am, I, am I building a rental for roommates, right? Knowing who the end user is early in the process mm -hmm. before you even start architectural plans is, is crucial. Yeah. So you, you mentioned hard money loans. Now, someone like me, I, I, and for those of you listening, getting money out of me is a fucking nightmare. Um, <laughs> I am I'm cheap beyond belief and I'm skeptical even more than I am cheap. I, I would say frugal more than not cheap. I would say frugal. <laughs> so, so it's, I, I, I am terrified. I have no risk tolerance. I have nothing. Um, Justin got me into this deal. What I, what I invest 25 or 50 grand, something, something like what, 20, 25 grand. Right. Um, he got me into, uh, the Dodd street deal. And what was the projected return on that? We're, we're aiming for 20%, 20, 20%. Uh, but you also do hard money loans now. Why? And, and Justin had said to me earlier, he goes, listen, some of your risk tolerance, I could get you into some hard money loans. Is that something you'd be interested in? What would you want? So what, what kind of percent rate uh, returns would you be getting with the hard money loans? And what are they? Yeah, so the way I got into it was when I, when I first got done playing, um, I actually did some myself. So my, my uncle, another real estate mentor of mine, you know, he's been doing tight in the title business for, you know, 20, 30 years, very sharp guy. Um, he's been exposed to all of this world for a long time. So when I got done playing, you know, I had my rental properties for, for income. And I was just looking for other ways, and I had some capital um, to make to make monthly income, right? So this is well, three or four years ago, maybe about four years ago already. Rates were a little higher, but he knew, you know, a couple of guys that were 
they, they did, you know, 10, 20 houses a year. They were professional guys. And he would lend money to them at 12%. And he says, hey, Justin, this is how it works. We give X amount of dollars on the, on the acquisition, on the loan, and then X amount of dollars for the construction that they don't, they don't get all that money at once, right? So to get access to each stage, there has to be completion so that the bank's always ahead, right? So your first principle is you're a first, in, in, in this scenario, you're a first lien holder on the property. So if everything goes bad, right, you are going to foreclose and take the property. So to, to just run it from like the beginning of a deal, this conceptually, if the buyer of the property buys well, let's say they're a professional person, right? They're, they're buying something for a hundred grand. A regular guy is going to buy it for 120. So you already, he's already buying well. And if you know what you're looking at, you can tell that he's buying well. So now you as the bank, you're giving him say 70 or 80% of that purchase. So if you look at it from the bank's perspective, they're buying the property very well. They're buying it for say six, 70 cents on the dollar, right? And that's, that's the most basic part of it. So you're a first lien holder of the property. The person buying the property, if you know you're looking at bought well, right? And, and uh, then the, the portion that you're lending on is even less than that. So your position is, is strong to begin with, right? Now, when it comes to the construction, there has to be a completion of work before you start giving construction money. So you're always staying ahead as the banker. So if at any point there's a stoppage, your position is, 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 has, a lot of, has, has a lot of room on it. And if there's one or one, what, depends on what you're doing, but if there's one missed payment, for example, like you, the default rate jumps to say 18% and that starts to eat up any equity. And if you foreclose on them, you take the property and now you should have enough room to just sell it as is and not have to do any work and get your money out and get hold. Now, there's a whole business dedicated that's basically legal loan sharking. I, they call it lending to own. They'll give, they'll give loans to people that are in tough spots yeah. with the intention of going after the property and hoping that that person fails. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole business of that. Me personally, I like to give you know, loans to guys that I know are competent operators and I just want to collect my interest, right? I really want to only take good deals with good operators and good people, right? With good business plans and good experience. And mostly guys who know how to build. Because like I said, you can't control the market cannot control the back end of the market, but you can control what you're buying for and you can control construction. You can, if you're good. So the loans we've been giving out lately are between eight and 10%, um, you know, points vary depending on the size of the deal. If it's a really small deal, we'll have to take some points. Otherwise it's just not really worth putting the money out. Um, but as an investor, you can expect to make eight, 9% on your money. And this is money that comes, hits your account on the first of the month, every month. And say, you know, say you get, 8% uh, annualized over 12 months divided by 12. And that for his, you know, hits your account on the first of the month, every month until the project is done. And the loans usually stay out for a minimum of say four months, six months and a maximum of 12. So in this low interest rate environment, it's a, it's a very attractive yield. Uh, you know, guys that are retired, guys that, you know, just have a lot of liquidity, but don't really know what to do with it. And I always make the comparison in my area in, in North Jersey and by you know, close to Manhattan, 
if you buy a decent property, a decent deal, I'm talking rental, you after debt, you're, you're maybe going to make 7%, right? Maybe. And you're going to have to field phone calls. You're going to have to manage. You're going to have to collect rent. You're going to have to incur tenant risk. The, the tenant laws are pretty brutal around here. To If someone doesn't want to pay you, they're not going to pay you. And there's nothing you can do about it, right? And, there, and it, there's a lot of that in this country. Depends on where you are. So to me, as an investor, you know, seeking cash flow and just seeking yield, you know, giving out hard money at 8% with no headache in a strong position, it, it's, it's, it's a pretty nice investment. And it comes down to the understanding and the comfort of, of knowing what you're doing. And a lot of people just don't have access to these sort of things or they're not educated on them. So they'll never get exposed to them. And they'll leave money on the table. It's like they say the rich get richer and the poor stay poor. And yeah, there's some logic to that. But the main thing is the, the people that are already rich, they have access to a, an assortment of things that if you're, if you're not in that, like, you know, in that league, you'll, you'll just never see it. You'll never learn about it. And working your money is, is how you obtain wealth. You see it all the time. Play with guys that made $50 million. If you spend $50 million, you're better off being a school teacher that knows how to maybe save 20% of our money. And then when they're, you know, in their forties and fifties, they're, they're pretty much, they're pretty much good. Right. So it's a matter of what you do with that money and having a lot of money is a huge advantage if you know how to work it and if you know how to invest it. But the principles that I'm talking about, you know, they're not readily taught. You don't learn it in school, yeah. which I find fascinating. You know, I, I grew up in a very nice, you know, suburban town in North Jersey, you know, very, very, you know, perfect upbringing. And when I got done, when I was playing, when I was playing in the NFL and I was making decent money, I had no idea, none, how to, how to work with the money, right? So I, I, I learned and could I have done better in hindsight? Totally could have, right? Could have probably, you know, saved an extra X amount, invested in it, but it's all a learning process. But the biggest thing, and even if it's not real estate, if you're making money, what you're doing with that money over time is is the is the whole game, the whole game to obtaining wealth. Spot on, mate. Spot yeah, on. Yeah. Crushing this. Justin, what what's been the like the biggest learning curve for you going through this? Like what's been like the biggest mistake or like different way of looking at things or mindset upgrade or just flat out failure? What's, what's it been? I would say for me, um, a big learning curve was really understanding like the finance, like accounting. I I was not trained in that whatsoever. I mean, when I played in the NFL, I think I opened my computer like 15 times. I never, I never even like used a computer. Um, I just worked out and ate good and played football. So when I got done, um, I started, I'm, I'm almost done with it. I started a real estate uh, finance degree from NYU. So, you know, you take accounting 101, finance 101, economics, but like, and I do think that school serves a purpose um, in a sense of, I'll call it being able to speak the language, being able to understand the terms and just like the basics of what's going on. And then the learning curve like kind of flattens and then like working starts to make you like learn a lot more. Right. But I do think a lot of guys, you know, I'll, I'll refer to former athletes, don't take that first step. And it, and it, and it inhibits them from ever getting to the, the workforce and then learning from there. 
a lot of guys don't have the patience or maybe they made a lot of money and they don't really need to do anything, right? And they, they'll skip that learning step. And I, I mean, listen, I, I had to basically get begged I, to, to go to school because I'm, I'm not a school person. Um, but I do think that some sort of technical learning is necessary. So for me, learning that was a big hurdle. And I, and I, was, I was doing Microsoft Excel classes on the weekends, right? Like, like very elementary things, but just to be able to, to use it. And I'm never going to be like the analyst quant guy that's going to, you know, take a $100 million deal and dissect it down to the last penny for everybody. But I'll be able to understand what's going on and use my skill set to basically, you know, build off of, you know, somebody that really is that guy. But I have to understand it, right? So mm -hmm. the finance thing and then... I would say, you know, dealing with contractors and, and construction is is very is very different than you know a white collar you know office job. You know, my, my my partner had a lot more experience than I did in that, so I, I learned a lot from how he dealt with them and handled them. But holding people on short leash, leashes and managing people, and you know, it's a fine line between not getting taken advantage of but also being a pain in the ass when no one wants to work with you. So walking that line is, is more of an art than a, you know, than, than an exact way to do it. But those, those two things, I definitely had a, a decent, a decent learning curve on. I mean, it's, it, you keep mentioning about the power of network, right? So your first mentor to now this current business partner, the guys that are really showing you the ropes. Um, with regards to the construction, are you using the same guys as much as you can? In because you're doing most of your so we, we have work our own in the same area. Yeah, right? At this point, now we have our own construction company. So, eighty percent of our business is our own work, and then twenty percent we take on like retail customers. You know, I have a couple of guys. You know, within a couple of miles, I won't go too far, but within like a couple of miles of where we are, I'll renovate for for regular customers. Um, but we have the way we structure it is: I have a main foreman that runs a crew of guys that are his guys that say my seven guys are, those are my guys, right? Like I know they're going to be within my properties or if I need to send them at all times. And then for my, for my trades, I have, you know, for, for masonry, electrician, plumber, HVAC, framers, et cetera, sheetrock. Um, I have a few very good guys <clears throat> that I, I, I hold honest by having, you know, just two or two or three. You know, if you have only one guy, it, you, it's really hard to distrust that they're, you're always going to get good pricing. It's, it, it's just the reality. So, you know, ha and with that said, you want guys that are going to do a good job. Because at the end of the day, if you're doing real construction, there's something called, you know, town inspections that you have to pass. So not passing an inspection for hiring someone that was cheaper, the delay and holding costs, interest, taxes, et cetera, is not going to be worth hiring the cheaper guy that might not get the job done. So I'm willing to pay a fair price for a good, solid job, um, borderline overpay. But if you're going to run a business, you just always have to be procuring prices. So now with the way the, way the market with everything, inflation, wood, blah, 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 has, has been going, the cost of your first your first flip versus now, what's how do you how do you account for all this? Like has has that been something that's really messed with you guys? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. 
the reality is since the, the whole, the whole Corona um, bullshit, um, everything has become difficult, not only pricing, but actually getting things right. And when you're taking loans between say five and 70%, you know, you know, a couple million dollars worth of loans, every, every month costs you tens of thousands of dollars, right? So buying things and getting things on site is as crucial as anything in, in, this, in this business. And that goes all the way to the guy building, you know, the skyscraper in Manhattan, right? So to answer your question, prices have gone up, not just on like working materials, but we're ordering say the vanities for the bathrooms, a vanity that was $1,200 a year or two ago, same vanity, is now two grand, and it's going to take an extra six weeks to get there. And the timing of things, it's to the point where I want to be ordering my appliances, my tiles. I want to be ordering almost everything, my windows, my doors, like within a couple of weeks of closing on the property, because we're seeing like three, four, five months to get some things. You know, I ordered my windows in August. And I, I drove yesterday to, to pick them up. I got a call. I said, yeah, we're, we have the windows in. And I've been waiting for them for an extra month. We're going to deliver them to you on the 30th. I said, I'm going to come get them myself. I literally go to the U-Haul. I buy, I get a box, you know, a 20-foot truck. And I drive it there. I take them in. I'm all excited. I'm like, we finally got the windows. By the time I get, I get back and count them, we're like 20 windows short. Like, they didn't even send all the windows. So what that does, when you're looking at it from the building side, if I have no windows, that means I, I can't do siding. I have to be very careful with floors and sheetrock and all these things on the inside because now the house is not sealed, right? And it just delays everything. So the way you deal with it is planning. You have, you have, we have to, you, we and people that are used to a certain way of doing business have to plan differently. I was having this... Uh, conversation with my my project manager last night because we keep saying the word delay it's not a delay this is how it is now we have to we have to yeah. plan this way this things are not delayed this is this is what's happening this is this is this is actually normal so for the house we just closed on last week i want to order my windows you know this coming week because if we wait till the normal process when we're going to do them we're going to Who's to, who's to say this doesn't continue for years, two years, three? Who's to say that? You don't. No one. Nobody knows, right? And then to answer your question about the cost, yes, the cost has gone up. I think it's a little bit exaggerated, and I think that suppliers in general are taking advantage of that narrative and you know trying to make money, right? Like, I, I think there's definitely some of that, but the way inflation works is, yeah, if those materials are going up, you know, theoretically. Also, the property values are going up, and we have seen that. You know, so the back end number has also grown, but you also have to be careful, you know, with, with that mindset, right? Because if you're in my in my camp, I don't think that the values can keep rising at the percentages that they are. Like it, it, it's the music will stop at some point, you know, and you can't not do business because of that. The best the best real estate people buy in, in all markets. They buy in up markets and down markets. If you're a true real estate business professional, you need to know how to make money in all cycles, in all, in all points of the cycle. So, yeah, it's definitely, a, definitely an interesting time when it comes to the, to the material stuff. Can you, can you see yourself, like, looking outside of your – where do you say you live again? Hudson? Yeah, we're in Hudson County. 
Hudson. Yeah. So are you going to start branching out from that? Because, I mean, <clears throat> at some point, New York, I mean, it can't keep growing, right? Manhattan. So it's obviously going to spread out. And at some point, with somewhere like Jersey City, I know that that's getting a bit more popular now, but there must still be some shitholes down in this yeah. area. Would that be the sort of thing that you'd look to pick up and, and stuff like that? Yeah. So we actually just uh, we just purchased the 12-unit building actually in Philly, in, um, in West Philly. Um, I think that's an, that's an interesting market. Um, you know, you have – it's a completely different business plan there than it is here. Um, but Philly we like. Um, down in Florida, we just made a, a sizable investment at a, at, a, at a retail center in Florida. I think that in general, the the narrative of people moving to you know North Carolina, Florida, et cetera, I think that <clears throat> in the past, when the curve starts to spike, you know the, the the Floridas of the world are inflated, and then they when when things go south, they get hit the hardest, right? But I think, that in my personal opinion, this time around, it's more of a like a social shift. And I don't think that's the case. I think that, you know, I, I read something the other day that they're building, I think it's Toll Brothers or one of them, is building like 30,000 single family homes in like, you know, a small area in, North, in the South, South Florida. And, I, and I, don't, I don't think that it's, it's a bubble down there per se. I, do, I, I personally know a handful of people that move down there and they're not coming back. Right. In the, in the previous cycles, a lot of those were second homes, you know, vacation homes. And those are the first ones people give, give the keys back on. Right. So those are the first ones that are going to you know, implode the markets down there. But to answer your question, I do think that the North Jersey area will benefit because I think New York is also kind of, you know, flowing out this way. Our, our, our last couple of buyers were people from Brooklyn, you know, and they they want to get away from that tight, tight city. And over here is like a hybrid. It's, it's city-like, but it's not as extreme. You can still pop in there in a few minutes. You know, the, the suburb areas are, are really, you know, ask Mike, it, it took him, you know, a year to find a house after every single house has, has 15 offers on it. And, you know, bidding wars are left and right. And, you know, I think that some of that will trickle back toward the city because I think that the city is not going anywhere. I'm, I'm in the camp that New York City is never gonna go anywhere. It's too big and too strong and it's the center of the universe. So that's, that's, that's my view, some people disagree with me, but I personally like the fringe area in between the city and the suburbs because right now the suburbs are doing excellent, they're doing great and we're doing okay. Like we're, we're, we're catching for every say five guys that go out there, we'll get one or two. But you know what, when, when it shifts back and people go back into the city, I'm not going to get all of them either, but I'm going to get a couple of them. So I, I, I like the, you know, in, in good times in Manhattan and in bad, I'm kind of positioned to be right in the middle of it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it, Justin was a part of the debacle of that three-unit house that I had every intention of buying and that we couldn't get anyone to do construction. No, no yeah. one wanted – it was it was a four – $400,000 job, not a single fucking person wanted it. No one wanted it. It was, yeah. it was too much work. And this is what Justin does every single day. Yeah. Well, that was, a, that, that was actually identical to the things that we build, right? Mm -hmm. Everything that we buy is built between 1900 and 1910 or 20, right? So these are, these are 100-year-old houses. It's much easier to just build a ground-up building. It, it, it's much easier. 
The windows are specced. Everything is, everything is normal. For us, we rip everything apart. And then the real work begins because this is wrong. We have to fix this. You know, the floors are completely uneven. We have to replace all these beams. The rough openings of the windows, you know, do we have to, we, we, can we work within them? Can we do we recycle? It's just more complex to deal with. And it's more, it's more time consuming, right? And, you know, to build ground up versus that, it's, it's going to be easier 10 times out of 10. But in an area like where I live, the zoning does not allow you to really do anything. But first of all, there is no land like to build ground up on. And the current zoning laws, if you knock down what's there, you're going to build something that's a fraction of the size um, that's already there. So you're, you're going to lose a ton of square foot. So no one's going to do, no one's going to do that. And that's, you know, that's the township's way of saying that we want to keep the neighborhood kind of how it is. And, and that's good. That's nice. Um, we'll, we'll make the old houses, you know, cooler than the new ones. I mean, you can, it is, it is a more creative and fun process to work with the old houses, in my opinion, although it is a pain in the ass. Um, but you know, there's, there's pros and cons to everything. We have, you know, say 11, 12 foot ceilings, you know, big open structures. If you're going to build something, you know, from ground up, you're not, you're not going to do that. It's, it, yeah. Economically, it doesn't make sense. You're going to have, you know, a nine foot ceiling. You're going to maximize the square footage. Um, so what, when you build the, from the older houses, they're more unique and it's a, it's a, it's a more creative process. Um, but it, 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 it does come with its headaches. Yeah. <clears throat> of your, of, of all of the work that you're doing, how much of it is for lease and how much is it just to flip? Like, do you have to diversify right now, also your industry too? Right. Right now, it's like 50-50. Okay. Like and listen, for, for us, the big thing is the rent control. So some of these buildings, you have to sell them because the way the, the, way the rents work, um, if, if you're getting, say, you know, $2,000 for an apartment that's worth five grand, you still, you can only rent it for $2,000 and, you know, $20 the following year, right? Like you're, no matter, no matter what you do, you can take a rent as, there's like ways to like try to get it for doing the construction. And then bottom line is it's a difficult place to hold properties. Um, but when, when we get the opportunity, there are, there are cases where, um, you know, maybe an owner lived there and there's no rent control or things like that. Um, if we get the opportunity to hold them and the numbers make sense, uh, we will, we will. But a lot of the times it just makes more sense to, uh, to unload them. And it also comes down to the returns, right? If I can make, you know, half a million bucks selling it or keep it and make a 9% return, which is, you know, phenomenal, 9, 10% return on a great asset. Um, but I can make a half a million dollars on it. I'm probably going to take the half a million bucks because I can go reinvest that money plus the original investment. And it'd be greater than the 9% that I would have had to begin with. Right. So there is a math component as well. Um, math and political, but yeah, we, we, I, I do, I do believe in trying to hold, you know, I don't want, you don't want to sell everything. You don't want to sell that. Yeah. Yeah. I love yeah. it. Let's let's cut it there. Justin, you're the fucking man, bro. Where can so how about this? Fire. If if anyone wants to invest with you, because we have I have coaches that they requested that you come on because they don't know what the fuck they're doing. They don't know who to invest with. They don't where can people find you? Yeah, just I mean, yeah, what I would say is uh, just find me on Instagram. You know, shoot me a message on Instagram, just my name, um, Justin Trotto. That's it. And uh, I've actually, I've met people off Instagram and I've, I've had investors, you know, I've raised a couple hundred grand off of strangers uh, off Instagram, which is interesting um, because, you know, I, I, I try to keep, I'm not a social media guy. My social media is pretty vanilla, but 
I, I try to track the, the progress of the properties um, on there. And like, I, I try to keep it you know, updated. Um, and then whenever someone hits me up, I say, listen, come drive down. I'll walk you through for two hours. We'll get lunch. You can ask, uh, you can ask me any question you want. And worst case scenario, you're going to leave there a little bit smarter. And that's it. You know, so I, I, I would say, just, yeah, just send me up on Instagram. Justin Tradow, at Justin Tradow, T-R-A-T-T-O-U. Perfect. Perfect, bro. Thank you so much for coming on, Justin. All right, guys. Always fun. Cheers. Bye.